The Mike Lupica Podcast. We are back now with the great Mike Lupica. He's one of the country's Mike most Mike Lupica has covered just about every sport. Candid interviews with legends he calls friends. I was talking to Jordan about Woods after the basketball game mm-hmm. the other night. Everybody wants everybody in sports to be the next this guy, the next this guy. And Michael said, no, he's the first Tiger. In your face questions. How much of a dope is he? Compelling. A billion dollar industry, the biggest we've ever had in sports in this country, often comes down to a flip of the coin. This is the Mike Lupica Lupica podcast. Here's Mike Lupica. Hello, and thanks for joining us on the Mike Lupica podcast. Today, we will be talking with one of the smartest and best guys in the executive position in baseball, the president of baseball ops for the St. Louis Cardinals. He is John Mosellock. But before we get started with John, a word from Gillette. Every morning I use my Gillette razor, I know what I'm getting a great shave. It's been a consistent part of my daily routine and and, and my dad's for such a long time. My dad used a Gillette, so there was never anything else in our family. My ProGlide and Fusion Cream give me the close, comfortable shave I'm looking for. Gillette offers a variety of shaving products for every guy. The new Gillette 3 and Gillette 5 razors start at $7.99 and deliver even more options for every guy by offering trusted quality at an affordable price. The Gillette 3 and the Gillette 5 are both available in stores. For guys looking to get Gillette Performance delivered to their door, you can find Gillette 5 at GilletteOnDemand.com. Check it out today. That's GilletteOnDemand.com. Welcome back to the Mike Lupica Podcast. And I am so pleased today in, in the thick of a baseball season with around 100 games to go to talk to somebody who's become a friend of mine over time. John Mosellock is the president of baseball operations for the St. Louis Cardinals. And I was surprised when I, when I read back on him. There have only been 12 general managers in the history of the St. Louis Cardinals. It is one of the iconic and important franchises in, in sports, especially in baseball, there was a time when the Cardinals, uh, everybody talked about the, the range of their fan interest was the, the, the range of the KMOX signal, one of the great radio stations um, in this country. Uh, they are back in play again, as usual, in the National League Central. And uh, Mo, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, as we're having this conversation, stop me if you've heard this one before. <laughs> The National League Central is extremely competitive, and it involves the Cubs, the Cardinals, who, as we have this conversation, are about to begin a weekend series, and and the Milwaukee Brewers. Where is your team right now, having withstood the injuries um, it has withstood so far? You know, I think it's, as as you and I talked about this past spring, we, we all anticipated this division being very competitive. We all anticipated that you would see Pittsburgh, Milwaukee, Chicago, in St. Louis competing. And, and so far it's lived up to that. I think the, the one thing that, that when, when you and I left each other down in uh, West Palm Beach this past year, the difference for us has just been we have never really been able to be healthy. And it's always been something. And one of the strengths I felt like when we were breaking camp in Jupiter was going to be our bullpen. And, you know, unfortunately for us, because of the injuries, we've definitely been a little bit exposed there. And, we anticipated having strong starting pitching. I think that's lived up to it. And and probably the one other sort of negative, if you will, or or or, or something that hasn't provided what we thought it would be was, was our overall offense. And 
it's not that we don't have the ability to score runs. I think the the big thing for us is just our inability to do it on a consistent level. So hopefully as as the temperatures are heating up, you're going to see some of our bats heat up and, and we can get our offensive going. Talking to John Mosellock, who runs baseball for the St. Louis Cardinals, uh, I thought, and we, we again, we had this conversation, more, I think more than once, uh, during spring training. I thought Marcel Ozuna was one of the great pickups of, of the offseason. I know that you kicked the tires on Giancarlo Stanton. Uh, it's not like Ozuna was a, was a consolation prize. And, and, Mo, it seems as if, it seems as if he is now uh, uh, rounding uh, into form. Yeah, I think so. Um, obviously, from an offensive standpoint, He's heating up. He's starting to hit uh, more home runs. I spoke with him briefly yesterday, and um, in his uh, excellent English, he told me he's 85%. So in his <laughs> mind, he's getting very close. And, you know, clearly when you're looking at, at our offensive struggles, he was part of it. You had Matt Carpenter, Dexter Fowler, and, and Ozuna really struggling to, to put up what historically they have done. And, and, and when you do that, when you have that happen and a third of your lineup is, is stressed or pushed, it, it can, it can uh, have a negative effect. And so for us to get carp going, to get Ozuna going, those have been positive. Now we got to figure out a way to get Fowler going. And, and I think once we do that, we're going to have a lot of confidence moving forward. You know, when you look, um, when you look at the way the season, uh, has unfolded, talk a little bit about young, uh, Mr. Martinez, who has been one of, I'm not, I'm not going to call him a surprise star, but one of the young stars of the season. You know, Jose is, is one of those guys, like for, for, for the St. Louis Cardinals, we've always looked at him as, as someone who can put up offensive numbers. And he has done so. You know, I think that the big struggle for, for Jose and his career was understanding where to play. And, and I think his defensive limitations when he was with the White Sox or, or Kansas City had an adverse effect on him. And, and for us, you know, we, we stuck him in our lineup last year. He, he ended up uh, doing a pretty good job for us offensively. And then defensively, we were having to play the outfield this year. He's getting a lot, much, a lot more time at first base. And, you know, there's been days where it's been a struggle. But when you hit like he hits, you can get away with it sometimes. Uh, talking to John Mozeliak on the Gillette Hotline, um, how important is the health of, of Paul DeJong to your baseball team? Because it seems to me, even from afar, Mo, that the Cardinals don't look like the Cardinals that you envision them being without him in the lineup. Yeah, I actually think he's a, a bigger loss than, than maybe people around this region realize. Um, I will I will say that Yairo Munez has done a nice job stepping in, but he's still not that the same impact you would get when you have a, a healthy Paul DeYoung. And, you know, I'm hopeful that, that you're going to see Paul back by late June, early July. Uh, he's progressing well but certainly an injury that when you lose somebody for five or six weeks that is an impact player, middle-of-your-lineup type hitter, it's a loss. Is Michael Walker now all the way back to being what Michael Walker was when he burst on the scene? I think so. He's got all his pitches working. He, he feels strong. He's, he's healthy. His confidence, I think, is at an all-time high. And, and 
you know, Michael has the ability to, t- to attack the strike zone. And I, and I think the one person that's been good for, for Michael Walker has really been Miles Michaelis. And, and, and why I say that is because the one thing that Miles does that I, I feel is like unique to, to, to starting pitchers today is he literally pounds the strike zone. Right. Um, he just doesn't walk people. And I think, I think someone like Walker really benefited from seeing that. And, and when you're attacking the strike zone, you find yourself in aggressive counts instead of defensive counts. And in Walker's case, that's why he's able to go deeper in games. He's able to get the quick ground ball, but he's pounding it, and, and I think he's benefiting from that. We're talking to John Mozalek on the Gillette Hotline. John Mozalek and I are watching a spring training game in West Palm. And one of the fun things about where I happen to live in, in Florida is I'm about 20 minutes from this ballpark. So this is, you know, and, and the Cardinals are about 30 uh, minutes away. It's, it's become, once again, a pretty cool spring ter- training area. And we're watching the game. And, of course, if you watch it with Mr. Mozalek, it becomes a tutorial on, on not just the game, but on the beauties of the game. And at one point, you turned to me, and I, I, John, this has gone right into a book. Um, I, I'm one of the novels I write for kids. You said, "Watch what happens the next time the ball is in play. Everybody on the field, meaning defense, is in motion." And I started watching it, and now when I'm at the game, I can't not, I can't unwatch that. And, and so, why is that unique, right? Like we also sort have of remember when we played little league or. or junior high school or high school baseball, wherever your career took you to. And, and we, all, we all romanticize on how simple the game of baseball is. But at the major league level, this game is hard. Why is it hard? Because you have elite athletes hitting the ball hard. The game moves at a pace that not, most of us never experienced. But yet, when you do watch it, it's perfect. It's beautiful. And the reason it is is because everybody on that field knows what they're supposed to do. And because they know what they're supposed to do, they're always moving their feet. They're always doing something. And, you know, I always feel like when when people watch the game of baseball, they they simplify it on on what they remember as as a child, but they don't realize how complicated it is. But when you do it right, it looks easy. John, when you look at the game as it's being played now, we'll, we'll get back to, you know, uh, your, your team, because I, I really I just love the National League Central and I, I, I love the, the job that you have. Is the game as interesting to you with the amount of strikeouts and the risk reward way? Not necessarily, not necessarily on your team that it's being played right now. I think the game would be better off if you had more action if you had more balls put in play. I think when you look at, at, at our fan base and, and, you know, you watch games, I watch games. What do we want to see? Um, Obviously seeing a dominating pitching performance can be exciting, especially if it's your pitcher. But when you're watching the game and, and you see always a three, two count and, guys willing to strike out versus take the walk or guys willing to strike out to hit for power. I feel like these trade-offs aren't great for our business. I don't think it's great for our industry as a whole. And the irony of all that is, is you're starting to see that even leak down into college and high school because they're trying to replicate what they're seeing at the major league level. And I think 
I was talking with Scott Rowland, um, our old third baseman, a few weeks ago, and I was asking him like what he thought about the game and what he thought about how you know hitters are so focused right. on launch angle versus you know the trade off of, of walks, hits, and, and, and home runs. And you know he told me like you know he's frustrated with how the game's being played right now, and you know he was like talking about how they're discussing potentially removing the shifts or making the shifts illegal. And he's like, look, Mo, when I was coming up, you learned how to hit the all fields. And, you know, hitters today are becoming too one-dimensional and teams are overexposing them. And so I think his point's dead on. If we really want our game to be something of, of not just yesteryear, because that's, that's not the way to think about it, but if we want our game to be where our fans get to see more action – we have to go back to teaching hitters to hit. Not just to pull, but to hit. And if that happens, I think that'll be better for all of us. We're talking to John Mozalock on the Gillette Hotline. It's the Mike Lupica podcast. How do you put the genie back in, in, in the bottle? I, I, you know, um, Stanton, I think, is already moving up on 100 strikeouts. Uh, he's hit 15 home runs. He has nearly 100 strikeouts. And, and you know he's willing to make that trade-off. But what do you do? What do you do to change the game back into what you're talking about? Well, I think from a very simplistic standpoint, it has to go back to how we teach it. And when you think about baseball and when you think about major league baseball, a lot of times you don't realize how the curriculum's being written for entry level players or rookie level players. And, and, and when I think about how we do things in the Cardinal organization, there's no doubt there's that copycat mentality. You see something working there, you want to follow it. But I think the industry as a whole has to go back to some of those core values that made baseball great. And what made baseball great is how hitters would approach their at-bats. Um, I'm actually attending you know, Red Cheney's funeral tomorrow. And you go back and you look at him from a historic standpoint on, on what Red did as a player. And, you know, I don't think anybody ever thinks of Red as that, you know, the greatest of greats. But you know what? He was a great player. Oh, boy. And he was someone that that knew how to use the bat. He knew how to use all fields. And for me, when I reflect back on that, and, and you, know, you obviously are going to do that after someone passes who was your friend and who you got to know, I feel like, you know, this is something we, we are missing. You know, we get so caught up in analytics. We get so caught up in, in what the industry is doing and how it's moving that sometimes we forget about really some of the more simplistic approaches or strategies we could implore or teach. And, as the game is modernized, I think we've sort of forgotten some of that. And, you know, whose fault is it? Or maybe your question, how do you fix it? Well, I think it's incumbent on all of us who work in the game if, if we want to see that happen. And, you know, I can tell you this from the St. Louis Cardinals perspective, it will be, it will be baked into our off-season strategy on, on how we think about how we teach tomorrow. 
Talking to John Mozeliak on the Gillette Hotline. Uh, he runs the baseball operation for the St. Louis Cardinals. And, you know, J- John, we've had this conversation before, but um, in no stretch of the imagination are the Cardinals, at least spiritually, a small market team in this way. Your demands from your fan base are as great as any the Yankees or the Dodgers or the Astros or anybody have. Absolutely. And and I think that's like one of the greatest compliments of, of being able to work for the St. Louis Cardinals is because of the the demand for winning, the demand for success. And that's really what makes getting up in the morning so exciting because it's not just a sleepy little town in the middle of the country. It's, it's a town or a city that, that cares. And, and to your point and how you opened up this this talk today was this is a really a regional based team. It's there, there, there are a lot of states that have their fingertips on what's going on with the St. Louis Cardinals. And for that reason alone, we have to keep focused on, on what tomorrow looks like. And what I mean by that is, is we can never get too comfortable saying we have this figured out because when you're having 3.3, 3.4 million fans come through your gates, they want to see a good product. It's incumbent upon us to make sure that product's exciting. And you know that even though it was only, you know, seven years ago that the Cardinals last won the World Series, you must sometimes feel as if your passionate fan base acts as if it's been um, as long as the Cubs had gone before they finally won in 2016. Well, you know, I think that's sort of the exciting thing of sports, but to your point specifically about seven years removed, yeah, it starts to feel like a lifetime because someone else is winning. Someone else is, is having that success. And, you know, I've always told people that, that don't really work in the sports industry or, or when they ask you, like, what's it like to win a World Series or get to, to the point of your career where you feel you're at the pinnacle? And for me, I always sort of explain it to people as, as like, success is fleeting. Because the moment you, you achieve it, you've already have to start thinking about next year. Right. So whether that enjoyment's one night, two nights, or maybe in the Washington Capitals case, four days, but my point is you, you, you eventually have to start thinking about what's next. And, you know, I've been fortunate and, and, and have had the privilege to work in a business where it's great to get to the top but it's more important to figure out how to stay on top. We're talking to John Mosellock, um of the St. Louis Cardinals. You know, it's, it's so funny when you were um, talking about Miles Michaelis before because you brought him up when we were watching a spring training game, and I have to confess to you, I had no idea who you were talking about. He's got a pretty interesting backstory for, for a guy who's found his way all the way back home to St. Louis. Oh, absolutely, and... and- First off, um, I'm probably talking about him, and you're probably like, well, who is he, and why do I, Why should I care? But that was basically what happened when we signed him. We were, you know, we were very excited about getting him signed, and, and candidly, I think there was a very competitive market trying to sign him, but you know, the one benefit we had was we trained in Jupiter, Florida, and that's where he's from, and so that helped. But he was somebody that was on sort of the baseball radar, but not the public radar, and 
<clears throat> he actually got off to a pretty slow start in our spring training this year. Um, I wasn't overly concerned that the public was based on his first two outings in spring training. And you would have thought that we've made a colossal mistake by signing him and not signing X, Y, and Z in the off season. And, you know, I, I, I will say, you know, we certainly make mistakes and, and those that they, they do happen, but it is, it is refreshing to see how well he's pitched and why, but the success he had in Japan has really translated um, over here. And a lot of times we are using sort of the analytical world to make decisions on that. There, there, there are some, some confidence levels you may or may not have, but I will say from our scouting standpoint, they believed in them all along. So it's, it's been a great story. John Mozalock is our guest on the Mike Lubica podcast. Much more with John after this from LinkedIn. A business is only as strong as its people, and every hire matters. <laughs> Tell Mr. Mosaic that. So don't settle for posting and hoping the right person will find your role and apply. LinkedIn is more than the world's largest professional network. It's also a better way to find great talent. 70% of the U.S. workforce is already on LinkedIn. And because LinkedIn considers skills, experiences, location, and more to match and promote your job to potential candidates, businesses rate LinkedIn jobs 40% higher than job boards at delivering quality candidates. Go to linkedin.com slash Lupica and get a $50 credit towards your first job post. That is linkedin.com slash Lupica for your $50 credit today. Terms and conditions apply. Has taxation in baseball and the threshold and everything else, has it permanently changed the way guys who do what you do uh, uh, look at things? And I know that you, you, you know, the, the Cardinals were never going to have a $200 million payroll. And I think we talked about this before. I, I believe I'm right about this. The only team that has ever had a payroll of, of north of $200 million that won the World Series was the New York Yankees of 2009. And then you look at the, the World Series winners since. Car- Giants three times, Cardinals, Red Sox, Kansas City Royals, Cubs, Asteroids. Is, is there anything, uh, is there any pattern to be dis- detected there other than the team that makes the best decisions wins? Well, I do think like, you know, teams that make smart decisions tend to have, have the most success. But I always felt like when I look at it, it's sort of, you know, payroll versus winning. What what does that really mean? And and you know, historically, when you have one player that's making twenty to twenty five percent of your overall payroll, that's usually where you have your biggest mistakes, um, because that almost becomes like a handcuff where you you don't have the ability to do other things. And and so, w- when I think about you know, 180, 190, or $200 million payroll, it's really how it's allocated or spread throughout your team. And and so when you're looking at clubs like, like Houston, where you're going to see a natural rise in their, in their payroll because players are going to become arbitration eligible, players are going to, they're going to try to buy out some of those RV years, and, and those are going to become more expensive. But if you're managing your pipeline properly, you sort of understand what that next group's going to look like. And at some point, you have to just admit you can't keep everybody. And it's, I think that's the hardest part of having sustained success is you, you, get, you put a good team together, but how long can you keep it together? 
And that's usually the test we all are challenged with once you find a way to win. Obviously, you wouldn't have been kicking uh, the tires on Giancarlo Stanton if you couldn't have made it work financially. But that would have been a pretty serious money to to take on. If if you're trying to balance the boat, there would have been a lot of money on one side of the boat. Yeah, I don't know like, like, if I would say that was probably the most rational strategy at the time for us, given we understand what our revenues look like and, and how to support it. But we, we did feel it was worth, worth, worth the chase because you, you, when you look at it just in sort of like, you know, price tag value or sticker shock. Yeah. But there would have been some ways to massage that, that we felt we could have made it work financially for us. Um, you know, long and short of the story though, is it, it never came to be. When Albert Pujols became a free agent, it's not as if the Cardinals didn't step to to the plate. And, you know, I, I look at those kinds of contracts, Mo, and, and I look at, you know, Miguel Cabrera, who just went down. I, I look at what the player that Pujols is at the present time. Uh, I look at what has happened with Robinson Cano, not so terribly far into his Mariners deal, Man, oh, man, it's hard to look at one of those eight to 10-year deals and say, boy, that, that turned out to be a great financial decision on the part of that team or that team or that team. Yeah, so it's interesting, right? Like, wh- wh- why has that changed? Um, and, and I think really understanding the aging curve and, and how much you want to accept it or not in terms of making decisions. But historically, 10-year deals, have not panned out. Now the question is, is when did the 10 year start? Um, you know, obviously if you're signing somebody at 31 or 32 years old to one of these deals, you, you almost have to assume or accept those out years, you know, last three or four are not going to be what, what you're hoping for, or more importantly, you should just assume they're not going to be very good. And that's sort of the financial risk you're taking. But, I think as as teams have a better understanding of performance and performance predictors, you're seeing you're going to see. I think from an industry standpoint, people trying to to make smarter decisions on those back years, and what that might mean is is you know higher salaries, but for shorter periods. You know, it's funny because you know what you hear is. Um, that when when somebody makes one of those deals, what you instantly hear is, okay, they're paying for the early part of what they they can reasonably expect from the player, except the money that they got to pay out at the back end, Mo, is just as substantial as the money they're paying early in the deal. Well, so so when you're when you're a negotiator, you're doing these types of deals. You have to decide how punitive you want your contract to look. And I do feel like front offices today in general are, are being, they're smarter at, at how they're thinking about their risk. And, and when you understand your risk and your tolerance for risk, it helps you understand the length and overall dollars of a contract. And, you know, ultimately, you know, I think in our industry we refer to it as sort of dead money when, when either a player is injured or, you know, completely underperforming. 
you know, what do you do with those types of contracts? And in our business, they're guaranteed, so it's a sunk cost. But, you know, for teams to be successful, how much of that can they actually have on the books? And, you know, I always feel like in, in, our, in our business, we're trying to avoid too long of deals that have too steep of a cliff. And, you know, I think that the smart organizations or smart teams recognize those cliffs sooner rather than later. We're talking to John Mozeliak on the Gillette Hotline. Okay, so you're going to come up on another trade deadline um, uh, this year, which to me is sometimes it feels in July like March Madness uh, in college basketball. And um, obviously you will have needs. Everybody will have needs at that time. And then you'll have to make a decision whether you think there's one guy who can, can put the Cardinals back to where you want them to be and I was wondering, when you look at something like what happened with the Astros in, in, in Verlander, is I, I think that every year, guys in your job think there's that guy out there, but how often does it actually work out that somebody is the difference, the ultimate difference maker, the way Verlander was for the Astros last year? Well, I think, uh, you know, Verlander it's an interesting story because he still had some years of control too, but see the dominance that he's brought. I mean, it was exactly what they needed and they got it the year before that. You could argue Chapman was exactly what Chicago needed to get them over. The and home. Miller so, and Miller nearly became that same guy for the Indians. Exactly. And so, so there are times where there's a glaring need that can, that can, get you where you need to go. But there's there's you know, like I've been doing this long enough to know that they're hard to find and sometimes the the the, the cost for doing something like that is hard to swallow. And so again that comes back to tolerance of, of, of what you feel like you need to do to get where you want to go. And you know, I, I also feel like you have to have a really good team if it's just one player that can get you where you need to go. And not many people are usually in that position. You referenced Araldus Chapman, okay, and and Theo Epstein, who is in a comparable job in on the north side of Chicago that you have in St. Louis. He's looking at 108 years between the last time the Cubs won the World Series and having that kind of chance. But Mo, he knew exactly, not exactly, because there's no perfect predictors. He knew exactly what he had to trade to get Chapman, and, and we now seeing the result of that at second base for the New York Yankees with Glaber Torres. Mm-hmm. Exactly, and that's the point of my point of saying that sometimes it costs you a lot, but when you're looking at, at, at erasing 108 years, it probably wasn't too bad of a price to pay. If it was um, you know, just to hope to get yourself back into something, it might have been a very steep price to pay. So, you know, I think everybody has their own calculus on how to think about a deal, and it's ultimately up to them to decide, you know, internally what you think you can handle. How many stories are there? And I, I'm not, I'm not acting like one happens every year, but you go all the way back to to Doyle Alexander and that trade for the Tigers, and he pitched them into the playoffs that year. But who did they have to give up to get him? Oh, a guy named Smoltz. Exactly, exactly. And and was that worth it in the end? You know that 
everybody has to like decide what is worth it for them. And, you know, the one thing I would say to you, because we're, we're, we, we, this conversation is about the St. Louis Cardinals and, and, you know, for, for us to really have sustained success, it's us about, we have to manage our pipeline. We have to make sure that we have talent coming up because, you know, a lot of times in the free agent market, we end up being the bridesmaid. We just, we're not going to win many of the bids. And a lot of times, like, you know, people are like, well, maybe St. Louis isn't quite as desirable place to play anymore. The bottom line is the proxy is usually money. And, and so ultimately for us, if we can be developing talented players, that is our ticket to success. We're talking with the president of baseball operations for the St. Louis Cardinals, John Mosellock, on the Mike Lubica podcast. More with Mr. Mosellock in a minute. But first, a word from Geico. There's a quick way you could save money. Just switch to Geico. All it takes is 15 minutes to find out if you could save 15% or more on car insurance. And Geico offers coverage for more than just car insurance. Got a motorcycle? Geico's got you covered. Got an RV? Covered. Got a boat? Covered. How about a homeowner's or renter's insurance? You bet Geico's got you covered. Go to Geico.com today and see how much you could save. That's Geico.com. Talking to John Mosellock, who runs baseball ops for the St. Louis Cardinals. This happens to be about the Yankees because I, I am a New Yorker. But but if you have a job like yours, the the Cardinals, they you can't afford to to make a mistake on on, on somebody like Jacoby Ellsbury and pay one hundred and fifty five million the way the Yankees did for him, um, and and not have it pat out. And and I, I am aware that there is no exact science. But the, a decision like that, just financially, it seems like would handicap you for years to come. And w- with bigger market teams and bigger income teams and bigger revenue teams, it's not exactly the same. Well, it's not. And, and I think that's what makes baseball unique relative to the NFL or NBA. And in our particular case, we don't have the same revenues as, as the New York Yankees or or other West Coast or East Coast teams. My point here is, is so you have to understand those economics and then ultimately decide how you want to purchase talent. And so for us, you know, we still feel the biggest bang for our buck is, is taking advantage of, of, of the draft and being successful in the draft and building the pipeline. Now, we understand you sometimes have to take risks in the free agent market and take chances in the free agent market, but... Again, for us to to know that we're going to be successful, we need to make sure we get that portion of our company right. You know, I I was thinking about that and 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 fate and serendipity and and tragedy. And and sometimes it's it has nothing to do with good decisions or anything. It has to do with fate. And, And you you encountered this in a terrible way with a kid named Oscar Tavares. We did. And, you know, when I, I, I remember this as if it were yesterday, but I was, I was flying back from that funeral with Mike Matheny. And for people and who don't, for, for, for people who are listening to us today and don't know, this was a, a thrillingly gifted young prospect who died in an automobile accident at the age of what? Uh, 18, 22. 22. Yeah. 22. Yes. Um, yeah, sorry, I should have started it that way. But, you know, when I think back to, to 
to his death, the, my first thought obviously was, you know, tragedy and it was a tragic situation for his family and, and, and everyone involved. But I remember thinking about this on our, on our flight back from Santo Domingo, that this was not something that was going to affect us next year, but we're going to miss him in 2016 and 2017. In other words, he was a young man that we thought was going to be the middle-of-the-order type hitter, right. hitting number three for the St. Louis Cardinals for the next six years. And when, when that doesn't happen, there is no reset button. There is no quick fix. Like a lot of people always ask me about, well, what happens when you lose a starter? Well, remember, there's five starters on every team. There's only one three-hitter. And finding that type of hitter is hard. And, and I think our industry, we're always looking for ways to find offense, create offense. And in our case, we, we, we usually have that, that pitching depth, and it's something that we've been able to, to maintain and manage. But I, I will say, from an offensive standpoint, losing Mr. Tavares was, was a huge loss to us. Talking to John Mozeliak, uh, runs baseball ops for the Cardinals. Um, we, had a, we had a very interesting conversation about a day this season. And we were talking about how, and, and, and Mr. Mozeliak was saying, it's not like Paul Revere. He doesn't get on his horse to, 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 to disseminate information. Everybody knew in a moment that, that a young relief pitcher for your team <laughs> was throwing balls, two of them, at 105 miles per hour in the same appearance on the same day. Literally, within moments, it was like it had been flashed on message boards all across the sport. Talk about what was going on in your suite that day. Well, as as you remember, after we spoke that that following day, that really what what, what occurred to me, and and, and I think which was really the, the takeaway for anybody that happened to be in that ballpark that day was, they literally just saw history. And so right away we, we Googled and tried to figure out like, has one of five ever been touched, which it had by uh, Mr. Chapman. And um, I believe he had done it one time, maybe two. And then of course to have Hicks do it twice, <laughs> Jordan Hicks to do it twice in a game. It's historic. And you know, I think that's one of the greatest things about baseball and, and, and why people like you and people like me, we, we love the game so much is because you just never know what you may see. And for, for, for that to happen was something that you know, I will never forget. I'll certainly remember where I was and, and, and what I was thinking about. But it's just, it's just so rare. And you know, the game is changing. The game is moving. You know, we spent a lot of time on this show talking about offense early on, but you know, velocities are growing in the game. And and pitchers are finding new ways to throw harder. And when you're looking at, at, at how they're modernizing their own way of doing it, I don't know how much more the human body can take before it just breaks. So as exciting as it is to see 105s, I don't know like what the threshold is for the human body to say, well, what's enough? 
Uh, yeah, it's like the hundred. It's like the hundred meter dash. I mean, you want what are the limits? How exactly fast can somebody go? I mean, I remember the four minute mile was once the barrier that couldn't be broken. And you said that day about Jordan Hicks, or the next day when we spoke about it. You know, now the question is, can he harness that? And then, in the unspoken thing is, will he be blessed by the baseball gods with good luck? And and the other thing that I was thinking about that you said that the next day when I wrote a column about this was. After watching him throw that way, you said, what's 95 now? 95 used to be really fast. That's so true. But, like, you know, just you go to any major league game right now and you see a closer or anything guy touching 95, you're like, huh, okay. Is there any more? And, yeah. and I'm not sure that's the right way to think about it, actually, because, you know, velocity is a metric that, that is a good indicator, but you know, still being able to throw breaking pitches, still being able to command the strike zone will still be what you actually have to value. And, you know, speaking of Jordan Hicks, since we last spoke, the interesting thing with him is he's starting to pitch. And when you're starting to pitch with that type of horsepower, you're going to see great success. And um, his evolution's been really fun to watch. He's so young, Mo. Is is he is is he a future closer or is he a future starting pitcher? Well, I, I always struggle with this one because it's a great question. First off, and that's a provocative question because I'm not sure there's a right answer. But you know, I think about how well he's evolved. Right? Like, like we didn't bring him from from high A and stick him in the major leagues as a starter. We brought him from high A and stuck him in the bullpen. And I do feel like that will likely be his home, but you know, far be it for me to put limitations on what he may or may not be able to do in the future. But I do feel like he's a pretty good fit in the bullpen. Is in, in, in your mind, have you ever seen uh, in, in your life and you're, you're not even 50 years old yet. I, 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 ugh, I mean, it's, it's, it pains me to even say that. I'm getting um, close. So. I, yeah, well, boohoo. OK, but here, here's here's what I want to ask you. Here's what I ask you. I can't remember in my life loving baseball and, and, and being in and on my side of, of this business, more young talent that we have. Uh, than we have in this game right now. Mo, I, I'm at Yankee Stadium uh, last night, and I watched a teenager hit two home runs, this kid Soto, for the Nationals. And, and the second, the first one was just one of those big Yankee Stadium flies that just dropped down dead in the first row of the stands in left field. The other one looked like Aaron Judge had hit it. Oh, my God, does this kid have a world of talent. Yeah, it's funny. First off, I was actually paying attention to that game last night, and it was like, Right, reminding me of like a heavyweight fight. It was just like, you know, what's next? Right. Um, it was just you know, blow after blow, which was fun baseball to watch, right? Um, but when you look at, at, at the game today, why is it that that younger players are, are having more prominent role in the game? And I think part of it is that sort of evolution of, of where teams are investing and where teams are deploying resources and, and what they're trying to get out of those investments. And so, look, we're in the talent business, and maximizing talent is what we are supposed to do. And in this particular case, when you're thinking about your competitive advantage relative to to 29 other organizations, a lot of teams are focused on player development right now. 
and, and how can they improve the asset that they drafted or signed internationally. And I do think you're seeing in the industry a lot more success with that. It's not simply roll out the balls and bats and you're going to have a good product at the end of the line. This is very focused, very structured curriculums for these young men to move quick. And, you know, our organization spends a lot of time doing that because, you know, one of the things we want guys to realize is if you do well in the minor leagues, we will move you up. We will promote. We are not, I'm not, like, I don't run this organization with, you've got to have a thousand at-bats before you get to the right. big leagues. Right, right, um, you, know, you do good, you will move. And I think you're seeing that really from an industry standpoint happening. And, and that's why I think you're seeing a lot of young talent at the major league level now. Talking to John Mazalak on the Gillette hotline. And I, I've, I've kept him longer than I said. And I, I hate to do that as the product of a Jesuit education. And that we, we share something in common. We have daughters who are, are currently products of, of uh, Jesuit education. Let's get back to the Cardinals for a minute. It, it's clear that um, your team is going to be in, in, in the thick of this. That, and the Cardinals will be better as they were earlier in the year when, when they are as healthy as they can be. What are the keys, other than health, for the Cardinals going forward? I think simply put, we have to, we have to get our bullpen organized. I, I clearly feel like Bud Norris has done a great job for us in the closer role. Jordan Hicks has obviously um, cemented himself as someone that can pitch the eighth inning or ninth in the future if need be. But we need someone else to complement that group. And so what does that look like? That means that means we have to have Mr. Holland be successful. Um, we have to have somebody like Brett Cecil go back to how he was pitching when, when we originally signed him as a free agent from Toronto. We need guys to step up. You're seeing some of the younger arms start to identify themselves, and, and those are like the Bowmans, the Brevias, and and Dombers. But we need to have somebody take hold of the seventh and eighth inning so it's not just the one-man band. And if we can do that, that will really solidify our bullpen. I think that would be helpful. So that really means a couple guys have to get healthy, a couple guys have to pitch better. And if that doesn't happen, then we got to go out and look for it because otherwise it's going to be a very long year for us if we cannot solidify that bullpen. And I think finally, when you look at our, our, our everyday club, we have to become more consistent offensively. It can't be one day where we can go out and score six, seven runs, win the game, and then the next couple just put up a one or a two. We have to find a way to be more consistent from an offensive standpoint. And I think we touched on it earlier, but we really got to find a way to get Dexter Fowler going. We really have yeah. to find a way to get Colton Wong going. And you know, if we're not able to do that, then we're going to have to find some other way to solve this Rubik's Cube because ultimately we need that to happen. There's a couple more questions for John Mozalek. One is, I know that you've got your own race to run and you've got your own problems in St. Louis and you've got your own responsibilities. Just from afar, have you ever seen a team go through an offensive stretch like, like the poor New York Mets are right now? Gosh, it's funny you bring that up because we were just talking about the Mets up in, our, up in the box the other night because – 
we we opened the season with them, and and they were an impressive club. And I think at one time they were like eleven and one or twelve and two. Eleven and I one. Mean, they went. Yeah. They were eleven and one, and then played three thirty three baseball for the next um, thirty three games. Yeah, which is obviously not what they expected. And to your point, I, I mean, I, I I live in a glass house, so. <laughs> I'm very careful about what I say about other teams, but I will say when, when I saw them this spring and when I saw them for that opening series, I thought they were going to be a very formative club. But they, too, have had a rash of injuries. Um, and, and, and once you sort of go down that path, if you don't have the depth, it's tough to recover. All right, finally, a uh, last question. And it's, 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 it's more of a statement, and it's half a question. We talked about this in spring training. Uh, Bob Kraft and I, the, the owner of the Patriots, were walking through uh, the parking lot at Gillette Stadium one time, and I refer, I said to something about him being an owner. He said, "No, no, no, I'm not an owner. I'm the caretaker of a public trust." And and you hadn't heard that from him, but that has been the governing philosophy of what you do. With again, it, what I what I describe as one of the most important and iconic franchises we have in this country. Well, um, I would agree with that statement, and, and one that, that I think Mr. DeWitt and myself reflect on a lot, because when, when, you, when you're involved in a, a professional sports team, a, a team that, that, an organization that really the lifeblood of it is your fan base, who are the fans? They're the public. And, and so you look at... at the history of the St. Louis Cardinals. Um, I certainly hope someday I can say that, that the Cardinals are, are better off than when I started. But even if I can't make that statement, I recognize that the Cardinals organization has history, has tremendous history, and, and most of that history had nothing to do with myself. I wasn't born. I wasn't part of it. And, you know, I've been blessed. I've been able to work with a a major league franchise for 23 years. And, you know, one of the things I always remind myself of, it's, it's, it's always exciting to work in baseball. It's always exciting to say you work for the St. Louis Cardinals. But in the end, it's really a privilege. Well, it is. It's been an enjoyable part of of my career that that this conversation that we began this spring is, is ongoing. Um, uh, I, I wish you all the best. I will be watching you this weekend um, against the Cubs because I know that in your part of the baseball world that you don't want to hear about the Yankees and Red Sox because the Cubs and Cardinals is a deep and passionate and profound rivalry and. And again, John, I wish you all the best the rest of the way. And uh, I'll be talking to you between here and October and maybe even beyond that. That sounds great. Thanks, Mike. John Moselock um, runs baseball ops for the St. Louis Cardinals. And I, I, I feel about the Cardinals the way I do about the New York football Giants. They're that kind of class operation and, and important to the, to the spirit of, of, of their sport. This is the kind of conversation we have every week on this podcast. It's why the numbers begin to continue to grow. Download it. Subscribe it. Go and leave a comment. And we will talk to you next week, everybody. The Mike Lupica Podcast is produced and distributed by Compass Media Networks in conjunction with Hiltzik Creative. 
For iPhone users, go to the podcast app and search the Mike Lupica podcast. Click on the Mike Lupica podcast icon and subscribe. For non-iPhone users, you can listen on Google Play Music, TuneIn, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast platform.